to the Gensler Design Podcast. The Gensler Design Podcast creates a dialogue between design experts, creative trendsetters, and thought leaders to discuss how we can shape the future of cities through the power of design. I'm your host, David Calkins, the Regional Managing Principal of Gensler's Asia-Pacific Middle East region. Today, we're joined by two experts in the field of architecture and construction, and particularly modern methods of construction. Professor James Murray Parks of Swinburne University of Technology and Ken McBride, Design Director from Gensler, Sydney. Together, we'll explore the latest innovations in building technology and discuss how they are shaping the future of the architecture and construction industry. To kick things off, could you both please share a little bit about yourselves and your your backgrounds? Jim, could you kick us off, please? Sure. Um, I'm James Murray Parks. I prefer to be known as Jim. And I am an engineer, mathematician, and physicist. I have been working with Brookfield for the last uh, 10 years, working on new innovative ways of designing buildings, stadiums. Before that, I was in many different fields in automotive, weapons design, sort of wherever you needed an applied physicist, I sort of was, was there. So that's my background. Well, thanks, James. Um, fascinating. We'll really enjoy talking to you today and hearing more about what you've been involved with lately. Ken, could you give a little bit of your uh, your background for us, please? Yeah, sure. My role here is to uh, lead the development of our architecture offer, and our point of difference in the market is our aptitude for modern methods of construction. The projects we're working on are looking at repositioning retail centres and turning them into mixed-use town centres, thriving destinations for the community, and also repositioning existing buildings both these project typologies are, you know, really aiming to hit our climate action vision f- for uh, 2030, which is all our projects to be net carbon neutral. Similarly, in repositioning commercial buildings, turning them into resi buildings or repositioning as an office, what our clients are interested in is speed of construction and minimising the, the lost revenue due to time of construction. Thanks, Ken. I, I think you bring a fairly unique point of view to your design work that's informed by some of your past. Could you give us a little insight into that? Yeah, sure, David. I'm probably, uh, this distinction in the marketplace has come from a background growing up in the country, working with my dad in the shed. He was an industrial chemist, and we used to collect old motorcycles and turn them into lean, lean racing machines. And while I was doing that, I didn't realise the significance at the time, but he taught me about metallurgy, he taught me about fatigue, case hardening, thread pictures, vibration, how things fail, how things can be put together efficiently, and, you know, how to get the best out of uh, materials like tolerance. These are the things we have to understand if we want high-performing buildings, as we do in a high-performing motorcycle or race machine. So getting the most out of the least, that's an environmental thing. We want the highest performing building with the least environmental waste and least consumption of energy. Well, thanks, Ken. When it comes to the latest developments in building technology, there are several exciting new ideas that are being used in construction projects today. Jim, could you explain some of the latest innovations in building technology and tell us sort of what the state of the art is? Sure. Um, The state of the art in in building technology is always centered around the connections when you're trying to speed things up, 
whether it be a crane design, gantry design, design of a, an erection system. If you're putting facades on tall towers, you might design a, an erection system. Everything stems back to the connections of that innovation. There is no difference between calculating a span of a column or a, or a beam. It's the same in mechanical engineering as it is in civil and structural engineering. And everything really comes back to the connections and the innovations um, that we're seeing now in construction have very much inspired from automotive in my view. Every time somebody cool comes along with a great new innovation, they're generally somebody from automotive or some sort of background in defense design or something like that. Motorbikes are really fantastic. If people know about motorbikes, as Ken does, you know, they're fascinating. The chassis of a motorcycle go through a lot more stress than most buildings will ever go through. Um, and the way they actually distribute the energy throughout the motorcycle and create a circuit is very awe-inspiring. So it's a great place to go if you want to troubleshoot and steal ideas to, to project a, a nice new uh, innovation into, into construction. Um, automotive is a wonderful place to start. Well, let me follow up on that for a second, because cars, motorbikes, airplanes, I suppose even, are, th those are things that are meant to move. Um, <laughs> and buildings we don't typically think of as, as needing to move very much, but I, I suppose they actually do. Can you sort of relate those things and, and how now new approach to building technology is working? Sure, yeah. When I was at Cambridge on my last stint, uh, I was working on a, a solution to connections in tall structures. Uh, I refer to them as inverted pendulums. That's all a building is, really. It's an inverted pendulum. And it, it basically sways to the right, and then it sways to the left. And we call this moment, moment return. And I used to always go into nature and look at how nature's inverted pendulums moved. And they didn't move uh, when you calculated or reverse engineered the way nature's inverted pendulums, like bamboo, for example, moved. The structural civil engineer designed this very clunky kind of way of, of allowing a building to move within the parameters of a standard that wouldn't make somebody seasick in the top story, for example. And, and this, this had no, no similarity whatsoever with what we found in the physical world as applied physicists. With bamboo, bamboo would move in a series of ellipses. So very tall bamboo in Asia, a very good species to study is a species called Buddha bamboo. Um, you see a lot of this in Singapore and Malaysia and so forth. And when, when you see the cyclones come through and you see the bamboo move, it moves in a series of ellipses, you know. And so it doesn't move in this inverted pendulum sort of mode where it basically tips one way, then tips the other. It, it actually softens the, um, the movement and shares the movement through uh, each node in the bamboo or the join or the knee in the bamboo. So this actually impacted the way we started to design buildings at Brookfield dramatically. You know, builders being builders, they couldn't really grasp the concepts of a physicist taking mathematics from bamboo uh, deflection and or peak deflection and applying it to a concrete tower, but it impacted to the point where we advanced the connections between the floor plates and the and the columns significantly to allow the building to soften um, in its peak deflection, similar to how Buddha bamboo softens uh, when there's a cyclone, for example. So the mathematics that we have in uh, from reverse engineering. Uh, how bamboo forms is absolutely alive and well today in the construction industry. That's that's fascinating, James, and it gets into this whole topic that I've read a little bit about, which is biomimicry and uh, learning from nature in terms of the way we design buildings. And maybe we can get into that a little bit more. But before we do, I just wanted to go back to Ken and um, get a definition 
Ken, I mentioned modern methods of construction. Can you give us a definition of that and talk about some of the aspects of it that are uh, making its way into construction technology uh, these days? Sure, David. There's a lot of terms around and they're used differently depending on the part of the world. Here we're using modern methods of construction as a kind of approach, an overall umbrella to applying as uh, the most contemporary thinking we can. And in, in a way, it's what the French say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, modern methods of construction is like going back to the days when the architect and the builder were as one. And that's what we like to do. That's where the innovation, I suppose, is also, is in the procurement. So in modern methods of construction, there's a subset of that which we might call uh, designing for manufacture and assembly. We like that because it's all about design. So that's using our digital skills early, literally build the building virtually before, uh, very early in, in the process, get as much risk, get as much defined, and work with those connections as James has talked about because we don't have solutions until we have connections and joints. Get that worked out with the broadest possible team of experts from diverse backgrounds like James, a mathematician and a physicist. Bring minds to bear early. Finalise the design and then essentially get as much of it built off-site before getting near the site. Generally, that's what modern methods of construction would be. There are other terms, prefabrication, which have been around for a long time. We, we prefabricate windows, we prefabricate wall frames, roof trusses. That's not new. So really getting people on board early and the architects going to the factories, working out how things are built and designing to suit that capability, just like we did in the beginning of you know, stonemasonry, if you like. Okay, so I think everybody gets the idea what modern methods of construction are, how that's impacting the industry. But can you talk about the benefits of, uh, of modern methods of construction? Well, I think one of the best benefits that is not immediately obvious to all is diversity in the construction industry. When you're building from Triton Utes or your, your truck with loaded up with tools at a different site every day, and you're lifting heavy elements and throwing bricks around and yelling and swearing at each other, that's not a place for everyone. If you go into a contemporary factory, you're more likely to get a job if you had a background as a gamer than a tough builder. It's about precision, cleanliness, um, pre-designing things before they're made. And, you know, that means if you go to work in the same place every day, nine to five, it's much easier to organise childcare, uh, you don't have to be a tough, burly guy. You could be a female, a mother, uh, any kind of person, then you can work in a factory. And so that's a big help. There's also definite advantages in terms of environmental impact. We reduce waste dramatically when we approach uh, design properly, when we understand how the manufacturer is using it, where the material comes from, exactly what size it is. So let's design to that size not slice off 10% of it and throw it away. Um, and in a factory, they reuse waste if it's there. Um, you know, I think anyone who's been to a conventional construction site will be horrified at the amount of stuff that gets thrown away. So environmental, diversity, and speed of construction, we haven't nailed cost yet. Cost becomes a distinct advantage 
when labour in remote areas is triple what it might be in a, a regional city or a main town centre, then the cost equation becomes helpful. So just following up on that for a second, in terms of our best intentions and really trying to produce a quality product and our aspirations, I mean, I think we all aspire to doing design that doesn't at the minimum damage the environment, but also begins to restore it. Can you both talk a little bit about the environmental uh, advantages of modern methods of construction? Certainly, Ken touched on it earlier. You know, having a relationship with a builder and an architect that isn't just one that the architect comes and meets the builder once a day or whatever, and then he goes off to his or she goes back to her office and then the builder does something entirely different is very important. You have to have um, a relationship where the builder and the architects and engineers have formed what we call a composition. Uh, If you have a composition, you increase your level of communication to the point where you're not producing a lot of waste. You know, you're sitting there asking the builder, what size are your materials that you're buying? Because then I can design to the sizes of the materials you're buying, reducing the offcuts and so forth. When you get that feedback first and you've got good data to design with, you realize as a designer, which I am, you start to lessen the the preemptiveness, I suppose, David, in, in design. You start to sort of stop to say, okay, well, this is, I'm not really looking at what the end game is going to be. I'm just focusing on the data that's being provided to me from my composition, from the engineers and, and the builder. And I'm, I'm, I'm now designing something that is actually relevant to what they are able to do. And the outcome is 90% of the time is a much better outcome for the environment. Interesting. You know, I'm in Singapore. Uh, you all are both in Sydney. But here in Singapore, the Buildings and Construction Authority is really focusing on modularity and modern methods of construction. And so I'm seeing a number of buildings here. It seems like it's gaining traction, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Where do you see things going in the next five or 10 years utilizing this technique? Um, I think like everything, uh, David, it takes time for the masses to get their head around it. No one wants to buy the first new Tesla car. They want to see how it goes for a couple of years and maybe buy a model after they've ironed out all the bugs. And I think that's what people in Singapore have been doing. I think they've been waiting and just seeing if the bugs are being ironed out now. Uh, there's so much data and there's so much confidence and comfort in the fact that if you get certain people to design and build your modular buildings, they're going to be way better than living in a concrete bunker. I'd add to that that some of the resistance possibly, David, or the slowness that James is referring to, the caution, is because some of the earliest modular or prefabricated buildings were low quality, imported or, or built cheaply for worker accommodation in mining. They, they filled a void in a market that couldn't be filled otherwise at the certain end of the, of the market. What we've been trying to educate people is the opposite end of the spectrum is also true, that you can't deliver, uh, you know, if, if you want bathrooms at, for a seven-star hotel, you'd best get it from a factory probably, uh, like Euro Components in Italy, because they produce stuff to a very high quality constantly. Thanks, Ken. Jim, we have been collaborating with you on some very significant work lately. Ken, can you sort of introduce some of that and talk about the innovations that are coming out of our collaboration with Jim? Yeah, we invited James in to help on a uh, extraordinarily on a large and tall building in the Middle East, and in two days we had settled with our Rhino model on the basis of James' whiteboard sketches and a, and a sketch he did on the airplane on the way. 
uh, a way to make this remarkably tall building, you can see that it's logical, you can see how it works, you can see that it's based on good architectural physics, as James calls it. And he also talked about how we could build it faster using a technique that the submarine industry uh, use kind of a dispersed, specialised procurement model from international experts around the world, building things that they're good at building and putting them together in a modular way, kind of platform base, like the auto industry. They agree to get parts from people who understand how those parts go together. And that was a fascinating experience um, to see James work that out so fast. There are other projects we're applying this to, our clients who want to retrofit buildings, it's really important to reuse the existing stock we have rather than demolish. So how quickly can we reposition that building with a beautiful new roof, for example, or a new atrium or new elements that are built off site and delivered to site to reduce the time where income is not coming in in the repositioning of that building? And that's possible through these modern methods of construction or designing for manufacturing assembly and only possible if we're working with the builders from the beginning as well. So there's two, two examples. There, there are others. Most of the projects we're working on now, we encourage our clients to look at early contractor involvement, which is a terminology for getting the builders in early, working with them in a partnering way or a complementary way, as James calls it. James, could you talk a little bit about the mindset um, that you bring to the design problems that we're working with you on and what you're trying to achieve in our collaboration? Sure. Um, when anybody asks me to do something, David, I look at it from first principles and I try and simplify it. Uh, I don't know how to do anything uh, any other way. So when people show me something, nothing's really new. Everything's already been done in the physical world. When people show me a big inverted pendulum that goes higher than any other inverted pendulum in the world, and they say, how can we stand this up? I look at it and think, hmm, it's going to need to not rotate. Um, it's going to need to tie itself in and, and, and distribute the energy down to its footing. And it's going to basically need to be a complementary structure. And the first thing I do is close my eyes, David, and I think of something in nature that reminds me of that. And um, I find something close and then I go and reverse engineer that. And then I get on a plane and I do a sketch and I come and visit the client. And I say, this is how you can do it. And it always works. Um, when I designed the Perth Stadium, uh, the Perth Stadium had already been designed. The design team had been working on it for about 18 months to two years. And it wasn't working. And uh, they brought me in. I looked at the, the architectural design. I turned my head upside down and I leaned over and I looked at the design and I thought, this still reminds me of the geometry from a motorcycle that I designed for a world championship bike. And I stole the design for the motorcycle from a spiderweb uh, geometry, um, which I also used in a previous stadium, a tennis stadium. And I looked at it and thought, this, I think I can get hold of the motorcycle geometry. And so I took the motorcycle geometry turned it upside down, and now we have 50 very large spanning trusses sitting on one pin connection. Um, in It's now called Perth Stadium. And it was all built by a manufacturer who makes warships and submarines. So the guys who built the Perth Stadium, everyone thinks Multiplex built it. They didn't. Uh, they project managed it. The real builder uh, was Jim Fitzgerald, um, uh, at Civmec. Uh, and Civmec build offshore oil rigs, they build warships, they build submarines, they build all sorts of things. And when I showed them my design, 
because the conventional builders at Multiplex couldn't get their head around it. Uh, Jim looked at it and said, oh, that seems perfectly logical to me. Yes, I can build this. And so he built it. And he was hired as the builder. This was the first time on a large scale in my career that that somebody had trusted us enough to, to do away with a conventional building firm and bring in a weapons builder um, uh, you know, from the defense industry to build a stadium. Jim Fitzgerald had certainly never built um, a stadium before, but he had built lots of other big things. And it stands there now. And the amount of awards and the amount of prizes it's won globally has just been amazing. It put Perth on the map. I don't really do anything special. All I do is behave like a physicist behaves, and that's how I was trained. I just go to first principles, and when I'm struggling, I go to nature uh, because the the answer is always there. Uh, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Ironically enough, the building that we've been working on with you is held together by a series of wheels, uh, ironically enough because I'd already studied the wheel and I realized the wheel was a very good thing to do. I've used the wheel for roofs before and on stadiums, I've used the wheel so many different ways. Um, the pin connection on Perth Stadium, for example, is a big round pin, uh, like a hub of a wheel. I think the answer to all of life's problems, David, is already done with nature. Humans just try to you know, outsmart themselves and they overcomplicate things and you don't need to do that. Just, just, just go and see nature. I wanted to... Um... Talk about our industry for a minute, which I think is fragmented. There's no doubt about that. I think we've been somewhat dysfunctional as a design and, and construction industry for a long time. I think we're somewhat behind other kinds of industries that we would consider high tech. But maybe at this point, uh, it's a hopeful moment because we're starting to really focus. We as a firm certainly are really starting to focus on our design technology as enabling um, greater innovation and creativity. And I think this whole modern methods of construction movement, if you want to call it that, um, focusing on all the things you guys talked about may propel us into the future. And maybe we've got some common missions now that we can organize ourselves around and collaborate better. You guys are both optimistic. I know I know you both. Um, but just talk about the state of our industry for a minute and um, tell me how optimistic you are about us doing some of the things I just mentioned. Um, in my opinion, as a scientist, I, I've heard a lot, of, um, a, a lot of bad data being bandied around the industry over the years. And, and it really comes from lack of research and lack of, lack of measured knowledge. There's a lot of conjecture uh, produced in the building industry that doesn't appear anywhere else. And when you're designing to conjecture, you're designing with bias influence and it's not necessarily accurate. The biggest problem the building industry has is lack of accuracy. Um, I'm not everyone's first person to employ, but when they know about me, they always remember, and eventually they call me and say, okay, I've, I've got a problem that we can't fix. Can you help us? And that's when this sort of approach to design using Newton's laws comes into the fray and we fix it. And then they sit back and learn and say, oh my God, that was cool. And so when the person actually gets hooked on that drug, that drug called physics, um, they very rarely go back. And, and I've watched change occur in the last 15 years in this industry that I never would have dreamed of happening. But it does. It happens. It's fantastic. So I am extremely optimistic with the work that we've done in the last 15 years has instigated a lot of change. And I'm extremely optimistic that it'll continue to do so. Ken, what do you think? Do we have common purpose as an industry at this point? 
Absolutely we do. And I like what James is saying because our digital team are helping turn us from a Tony Stark into an Iron Man. That we're not trying to use AI to do their work for us, but to actually inform us. At the end of the day, design is about choice. It's about judgment. And to give us data-driven decision-making so uh, the data is quality data, as James is talking about, so we make design decisions well-informed more quickly. I think that's really exciting. And that ties back into the uh, design for manufacture and assembly because that is about collecting information and knowledge early in a project, the most thorough collection we can in decision-making. And when we collect all that and start to compare that across our firm of 7,000 designers, um, 7,000 practitioners, that's an exciting database. This has been great. I've, I've enjoyed our conversation. Jim, is there anything else you'd like to uh, say before we sign off? I think that would be good to, to point out that everyone out there in Gensel world, that you guys have got a bigger opportunity to, to instigate change and, and to induce betterment in design than probably anybody else in the world. You're big, but you've got credibility, and you've also got something that most people don't have. You've got a data knowledge that, you know, I, I could only, if I could get access to all of the data you've got and we could put it all in one big space, um, it would it would tune you up and you'd be so you'd be light years ahead of any design house in the world and you, you probably already are but if you could bring all of your data into one space and give accessibility for your designers to that data to all of that knowledge to all those lessons uh, wow wow thanks james i think we're working on that i think we're, that's absolutely something that we're focused on ken any final thoughts from you I just thank you for the opportunity to have a chat with James and you, David. It's been a really good fun. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. And thank you, Ken, for sharing your insights on the exciting advancements in, in construction technology. It's clear that these innovations have the potential to revolutionize the way we approach construction, creating a more sustainable and efficient built environment. This is the Gensler Design Podcast, and I'm your host, David Calkins. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.